this particular Bible reading. This is an occurrence of the ascension or translation of Elijah into the heavens. He has a conversation with a young man that has been his servant. His name is Elisha. Of course, Elijah and Elisha were major prophets uh, to the household of Israel. Verse 9 is the chapter or the verse that I'd like to read. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said in Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And I want to speak to you tonight on the subject, Elisha's wise choice. Okay? Elisha's wise choice. Now, there are certain things that we want to call your attention to, and you might consider this more of a Bible study than anything else, but I feel that it's necessary to go through this with you. Elisha chose a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Now, if I were to come to you and ask you to make a decision and whatever, or make a, a wish, and whatever wish you made would come true, what would you wish? Now, this has always been a childhood dream of many children. I know in growing up, you know, we always got into conversations about, you know, if I had this or I had that, or I wish that I had this, and I wish that I had that. So often, we are deprived of those things that we would really like to have. We just, uh, uh, somehow we just can't afford all the things of life. And there are certain things that we would naturally go out and get if we had the money to get them. But you quite often hear children speaking, uh, what would you like, or... or here I'm the fairy godmother, and you know, with the wand, and I'll give you whatever you you want, and and uh, and bingo, and here it is. And of course, this is always a an excitable moment just to think about it. And I suppose that Elisha chose the thing that most people would not have chosen had someone have asked them what they wanted. And uh, this young man saw the value. God was his first choice. I preached a message once and I titled it, God, First Choice or Last Resort. And I want to speak about this just for a moment in your hearing. I feel the people that are blessed abundantly by God are the people that choose God as their first choice. In other words, they really don't have, as far as physical needs are concerned, they don't have uh, a lot of needs. You will occasionally run across a man that appears to be quite happy doing what he's doing. He has everything in life that he really needs to have happiness. And yet when you confront the man concerning his soul... 
you find out that there is a need there. And this man will choose the way of the Lord. Now, this is not very often the pattern that men follow. Most people, when they come to God, they come to God as a, re- as a resort. They, they turn to Him as a last resort. They, they just feel that there is no other alternatives. They've tried everything in the world. And they turn to God as a last resort. And I must confess to you that I stand behind this pulpit as a product of the latter. I did not turn to God as a result of my choosing. I turned to God as a result of a number of heartaches and a number of consequences that I began to suffer from. The Bible says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked whatsoever man soweth. That shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And we see a lot of people out, as a lot of parents would like to say, sowing their wild oats. And I've even had parents to encourage their children to go out and sow wild oats. I've had them to tell me that. You're only young one time. Have a good time. After a while, marriage demands responsibility. Marriage demands uh, the giving of yourself. And uh, have a good time while you can, while you're not uh, obligated to anybody or anything. I do not personally feel that there is ever a time in any person's life when he is not obligated. I do not feel there is a time in anyone's life when he is not responsible. We should not encourage children to sow wild oats. Quite the contrary. We should encourage them to live for God. We should encourage them to adhere to what is found in the Bible. When the Bible speaks concerning a man seeking the Lord while he is young, the Bible has a reason for that. The Bible, I say, has a reason for that. There are several things that will haunt the memory of a man from now on. Do you realize that that there are certain things that I did that I can't forget. I'm here to tell you I can't forget them. There are certain wrongs that I have committed that I can't get it off of my mind. And I know that there's nothing that the devil would like better than to come by and use this as a real instrument against us. You see, when God forgives us, the Bible teaches us that He forgets it. See, God being divine has a quality of forgetting. But you being human, you do not uh, have that quality. And so there are certain things that even though God forgives you, you can't forget it. And it's just like the devil to come and bring it up. He likes to bring up those things and, and haunt you with them. The memory of man is never dying. In fact, when men go into eternity they still have their memory. In Luke the 16th chapter, the rich man that went to hell, the Bible says in hell, he lifted up his eyes, and being in torments, he seeth Lazarus afar off. The first thing he cries for is Lazarus. He says, bring Lazarus that he may dip his finger in water, and that he may come and cool my tongue. Now keep in mind that when he went to hell... He did not ask for a drink of water. All he asked for was one drop of water. Just one drop of water. He thought that 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 
at least would help. Of course, being in this eternal place of confinement for the soul, he had uh, no other choice but to burn with unquenchable fire forever and forever. Now, I realize in our present modern day when so many fables, you remember this morning I talked to you about fables. The Apostle Paul instructs Peter that in the last days men shall turn from the Word of God and turn to fables. Now, fable is a story that is based upon a fictitious happening, something that can not happen. When Jesus gave parables, He gave parables. These were simple stories of real happenings, things that were related to life. A fable, however, is a story. It's a story of some fictitious event that can not happen. Now, in the last days, the Bible says people will turn away from the Word of God and they will turn to fables. In other words, they reduce the unadulterated Word of God down to mere storytelling. Just tell me a story. Let me hear something. Something that's not related to the Word of God. That's why in pulpits they talk about politics and they talk about economy and they talk about the government. And I know that you say, you may say, well, we need to be informed of all of these things. Listen, there's mass media out there waiting to cram all of that stuff down your throat. You know what's happening in the world. We are not so much concerned about what is happening as far as the economy is concerned. Now, I'm not going to say I'm not concerned, but our primary purpose in this unit of Christian fellowship is not to keep us abreast upon what is happening as far as the world concern, is concerned, but we are here to learn of the Word of God. And I may be considered an old-fashioned preacher, and perhaps at some times you may think that the apostolic message is certainly awkward in our present modern-day society. But I'm here to tell you, my friend, that the Bible is a road map that teaches me how to get from this earth to heaven. And I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that every man shall stand before God someday to give an account of the deeds that he has done in the flesh. And the Bible says the book shall be opened. And my friend, your life will be measured not according to what your preacher says. It'll be measured not according to what the government says. It'll be measured not according to what the philosopher says or the psychiatrist says. But it'll be measured according to what thus saith the Word of God. The Bible is a measuring stick for morality. Well, we are living in a day where we have the new morality. Listen, the new morality is nothing more than the old immorality. You see, we've got all kinds of things. and We try to spruce up things. We try to dress up things. But uh, according to the Bible, a drunkard is a drunkard. According to the Bible, a liar is a liar. According to the Bible, sin is sin, and we can't get around. Oh, we've got fancy words in our present day. We don't like to tell a man he's a sinner because it's going to hurt his pride. We try to, we try to get around that. But I, I'm, I'm here to tell you that none of us would be here had not it have been for the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed upon the cross. Peter says, we're not redeemed with corruptible things as gold and silver but by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, you can bring people in and you can educate them and reform them and bring about a certain quality of living in their life. But nothing, my Bible tells me, nothing shall take away the sin of the world save the saving blood of the Lord that was shed upon the cross. 
So a lot of people are offended when we preach about the blood. They call it the gory gospel. We preach about hell. They say don't scare everybody to death. Jesus spoke about it. The Bible speaks of the necessity of His blood, and I'm going to preach it. You see, in our day, everybody's rising up and voting against what Jesus said. But my friend, the Bible says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but His word shall remain. Praise God. The flower fadeth and the grass dieth, but the word of God shall endure forever. Praise God. God and His word are inseparable. I say God and His word are inseparable. This rich man in hell... This rich man in hell, the first thing that happened to him, the Bible says he was spoken to, and the thing that haunted him so much was these words, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime. And while we're telling young people, go sow your wild oats, they are creating a memory that will haunt them, not only eternally, but right here too. The mind of man is continually uh, at work. There are times when I wake up in the middle of the night. I wake up in the middle of the night and I felt so unclean. And I think about why do I feel unclean? And then my mind goes back to some of the things that I've done and some of the things that I've said. And, And there it is a haunting memory. I've slipped out of my bed and fell on my knees and asked God, Lord, I just want to ward off the power of the devil. The devil's making me feel this way. You see, when you forgave me, you forgot all about it. And that's a good thing about the Lord. Praise God. He forgets it all. I praise God for that quality that He has. I think if there ever was a time that we need to honor the children of the faith that have been true to the faith, it's this day we live in. Sometimes it's so easy to take people that have been involved in everything in the world and, and honor them. I mean, when I say honor them, I think we should honor all of God's people. But sometimes we do more than honor them. We call and bring to the attention of the people too much of the workings of the devil. We need to highly stress God's saving power. I feel that, that the people that really need To be honored are the people that were like Joseph. Now Joseph was a very unselfish young man. Joseph was sold by his brothers. He was sold to the Midianites and became an Egyptian slave or slave to the Egyptians. Joseph was in prison 20 years. And yet in all this time, he was true to God. Here's a true picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. He was a type or a shadow of Jesus of the Old Testament. And here he was. This young man, even when he was separated from his friends, he had he had reason, if we can call it reason, to sin. There was an Egyptian lady. The wife of the governor made a real play for him. And she wanted him to commit adultery. Now, nobody, perhaps nobody, would have found out about this. But he slipped from the bedroom there, and she was pulling at him, and he left his coat behind. Because his coat was found in Potiphar's wife's bedroom, Joseph 
was taken to the courts and put in prison. She accused him of committing adultery. But in all this, he kept a good, sweet spirit. He hadn't done no wrong. And for 20 years, he was in prison there. But you see, God has a way. Now, if there's anything I want to stress tonight, I want to stress this. God has a way of exalting His people that are true to Him. You know, sometimes you think, well, living righteous and living godly and, and this business of every day being a Christian is just not a paying thing. Yes, my friend, it is. Yes, my friend, it is. There are a lot of people that would rise to stardom in God overnight if they could do it overnight, but it just doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. That's why I've chosen this particular story tonight. Remember, Elisha did not get what he wanted in just a moment's time. There were several years spent there in perseverance and godly living. Let's go through that just for uh, in the next few minutes. His first reaction to his call is found in 1 Kings, the 19th chapter. 1 Kings, the 19th chapter, Elijah, now in the Old Testament, Elijah was a type of Christ. Elisha was a type of the church. Now, Elijah was the man that was translated and did not see death, or he was taken up, he ascended the heavens, just as Christ ascended into the heavens. Now, the first thing that happened when Elijah came by, he put the mantle on him. Now, the mantle was a symbol of, of, of authority. It was a garment worn by the prophets. It symbolized God's authority or God's approval or God's anointing upon them. The Bible tells us that he came by, in verse 19, the Bible tells us that Elisha was plowing, plowing out in the fields, had his hand to the plow, and here he was. Had twelve yoke of oxen, oxen before him. Elijah, Elijah passed by him. He cast his mantle upon him, symbolizing that I want you to become my servant. And so he did. Now, notice what he did. When he was called, he burned his plows, he slew the oxen, he bid his friends and family goodbye. Now, these three things that he did are highly symbolical to a person that steps out and follows the Lord. Irregardless of what we say, the Bible teaches us that we must forsake our families to follow the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that we move out of their household. That doesn't mean that we kiss them goodbye and forget about them. But that simply means that they are not number one in our life anymore. Christ is number one in our life. Now, you may say, well, Brother Ren, in doing so, this is the breaking down of the family family unit. No, it isn't, my friend. A lot of us would be better if we would turn our relationship over to the Lord. That is the relationship that we have with our family. Let God work. And a lot of us would be better if we turn our marriages, by the way, over to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when God becomes number one, the family structure is stronger. When God becomes number one, the marriage is stronger. And you that are dating and you that are courting, the first thing that you need to think about in your relationship is that Christ is number one. I will not ever conduct myself in any way as unbecoming to a Christian. And you will find that if Christ is number one in your courtship, 
you will find one thing to be highly prevalent. And that is that you will acquire a deep appreciation, not only for each other, but for God Himself. And thus, you will bond yourself together with love that is more binding than mere physical love. Okay? Now, he burned his plows through the oxen. In other words, he acquired a new life. And isn't it true that when we come to God that this is exactly what happens? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verse 19 and verse 20, Behold, all things are new. Now, I still believe that an encounter with Jesus Christ changes a man's life. So many times in churches you can shake the preacher's hand or meet the secretary, put your name on a church roll someplace, become a member of the church, have a, have a place where you can be buried and a lot of beautiful things that are said over you when you die. But that you miss it all if that's all you're getting out of church and that's all you're getting out of God. In the Bible when they accepted or when they found true Bible salvation, that encounter with God ultimately Changed them. In fact, it changed them to the point that they became new. Everything of the past was obliterated, completely obliterated in this new walk with God. They were new creatures in Christ Jesus. Now, you know the word new creature in Christ Jesus taken from the Greek means a new species. That means a different breed altogether. Pardon the expression, but that's what it means. And you may say, well, we're all one. All one big family, the human race. Well, from the natural standpoint, that's true. But you see, Jesus changed it for us. We became a new species. We act differently. We talk differently. We walk differently. We are different. And there's nothing in the world that can transform a soul as fast as a transforming power of the Holy Ghost that puts you into a new kingdom. I'm not a citizen of this world anymore. That's not that I'm going to run out and renounce my citizenship with the United States. I think it's an honor to be here. I think it's an honor to be able to serve your country. I believe that true children of God should be very patriotic. But the Bible tells us our true allegiance is to God. We are a peculiar people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Can you believe that? A holy nation. I've heard people say there are no Christian nations left anymore. America was the last one and she's turned godless. But I'm here to tell you as long as there's a world there will be a holy nation. Where are the boundaries? How are they protected? What about its defense? Now, that's a whole message within itself. But you see, the boundaries of the nation that I am a true citizen of does not start up in Canada and stop in Mexico someplace, my friend. Jesus said, the time shall come. They shall come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob around the throne of God. I'm an ambassador in this foreign country that I live in. That is the world. My true citizenship has been changed from the planet Earth to the holy city of New Jerusalem.
Praise God. There is a holy nation. Yes, I say there is a holy nation. So we're a new species. Maybe you haven't heard it just that way, but that's, that's what it means. All things are new. Elisha's willingness to make a new life tells me something. Because you know there are a lot of people that want Christ, but they, don't, they want to do the old things too. And this is the day in, in which it's real popular to talk about Christianity. It really is. Why? Because there's so many people talking about it. But quite the contrary, we still see this godless situation prevailing. Why? Tell me why. You see, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of God, but he that doeth the will of my Father. See? And so we find in our present day, even though it's popular, even to speak with tongues, and people all over the world are speaking with other tongues. And I believe that we ought to because the Bible tells us that. And if you never received the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues, you're missing out on a real vibrant Bible experience. You may say, you mean i got to do that to be saved? I think that's so negative when we say we've got to do anything God wants us to do. It's your privilege to do that, my friend. And I think you ought to look at everything that God has as a privilege. You mean I've got to do this? No, I don't guess you've got to do nothing. <laughs> I might be good English, but it's pretty good theology. But I'm glad... I'm glad that God has allowed me to have everything that I know in the Bible there is. The Christianity is not something you talk about. It's something you live. It's something you practice. It's a part of your life. Now, he bid his family and his friends goodbye. I'm now a servant of Elijah. Now, servitude is that point in which you prove yourself. You don't hear about him much from the time he burned his oxen or his plow and boiled his oxen and fed them. They had the feast of his leaving. You don't hear much about him until the time that his master says, now you can have whatever you want. You hardly hear anything about him. But keep this in mind that when we look at his life, it's in this silent era of his life that real character is built. Now, I've noticed this in true Christians today. You know, sometimes they, they come into the church in a real blaze of glory. Everybody knows they're here. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God. Jumping up and down. Clapping their hands. Some of them are dancing in the Spirit. Now, that's not to say that I think that that's going to all leave you. Sometimes it does leave you. You know, I've seen people come in, sit down on the pew. They're so sedate, you know, and so nice. Well, God couldn't move them if He wanted to. Really, they just sit there so stiff-necked and so beautiful. And then they look over at somebody new in God and they wonder, well, what's wrong with him? You know, you're expecting that after a while, through the wear and tear, that he's going to lose what he has. Well, listen, I've had the Holy Ghost a long time and I haven't lost mine. And I don't think I ought to lose it. And that's not to say every time you come to church that Pastor Grant expects you to be jumping up and down. 
Praise God. I like for Christians to be happy. I like for them to sing with real joy from their heart. It's expressed in their fingers. It's expressed with their mouth. You can see the glow on their face. I believe the most beautiful portrait ever painted of Jesus Christ is the portrait that's painted on a beaming Christian face. You know, they paint portraits of Jesus. His long hair. I don't believe Jesus had long hair myself. Nobody made me believe that. Especially in view of the fact that the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, for a man to have long hair, it's a shame or a sin to him. But they go to quite an extent to paint him just so manicured and so nice. I believe that Jesus was very much masculine. You know, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, the effeminate shall not see the kingdom of God. You may say, what did he look like, Brother Grant? The nearest that I can come to a true description of Jesus is to look around at some of the beaming, excitable faces that I see at Calvary Gospel Church and throughout the world where all true Christians worship. And there he is, my friend. We paint a beautiful picture of God when we worship the Lord as stated in the Bible. Praise God. And I believe that we ought to stick with the Bible. Praise God in the Bible. They worship God. In fact, they worship God to the point some people raise their eyebrows. They said these people are crazy. They really did. Read Acts, the second chapter. Peter said, these men are not drunk as you suppose, being it's about the third hour of the day. All right. After two or three weeks, however, excitableness, all of a sudden the devil comes by. Now, there's one thing I don't like to do for new converts... And I want you to listen to this because I don't want you doing it. If someone tonight receives a baptism of the Holy Ghost, don't run up to them and say, now, now you've got to be careful because the devil's out there. I've had a lot of people to tell new converts, now you watch out, you know, the devil's going to jump on you tomorrow. Oh, he's just going to tromp you down and, and he's just going to, listen, you just get braced. And man, they crawl out of the bed the next day and fall underneath the bed and look out and they're wondering where he is, you know. Well, naturally, if you're looking for the devil... He's going to come around. They're going to find out soon enough that there's a devil. Somebody asked me, how come when I was out in the world, how come the devil never bothered me? You didn't even know there was a devil, that's why. You don't really understand what the devil's all about until you find God. But the devil comes by and sure enough he does attack us. Now, Jesus had 40 days of excruciating, uh, a painful, agonizing, emotional upheaval in the wilderness. And I believe that every Christian has a wilderness experience. Sooner or later in their life. It's in the wilderness experience that Jesus conquered the devil. This is a time in which you build character. And you see, this is the reason why you don't hear much about Elisha from the time that he burned his plows until Elijah says, What do you want, son? Several years passed by. You know what he was? He was an obedient servant. Now, the Bible doesn't say it, but he was a, the Bible tells us that he was a servant to Elijah. The Bible doesn't say all this, but I suppose a servant is, Get me a glass of water. Well, here it is. Would you take and wash this mantle? Well, here it is. Well, this doesn't seem like it's getting me anywhere. And I know that some people that sit right here under the sound of my voice, sometimes you wonder, 
Where am I going? What am I doing? I've even had people come to me and say, Brother Grant, it seems like I'm spinning my wheels. But remember this, if you are building character, you are building the very thing that the whole church is built upon. It's built upon the character of God. It really is. Now let's talk about building character. How do we build character? Now this is something that's very important. Let's just turn in the Bible someplace. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13, okay? <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 13. This is such a beautiful, beautiful uh, place to start in this. Have you ever read your Bible and changed it just a little bit? Now, I'm not saying change the, the meaning of it, but, but change it to get a clearer picture. Now, let's give you an example. Now, Christ was the Word of God personified. Is that right? Read John 1, verse 1. He was in the world. The world was made by Him. The world knew Him not. And He goes on down to say, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word. Christ was the Word personified. So let's change this just for a minute. All right. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels and have not Jesus. Here it's love. Now follow this. I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not Christ, I am nothing. God is love. The Bible says He is. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not Christ, it profiteth me nothing. Christ suffered long and is kind. Christ envied not. Doesn't that sound like Him? Christ vaunteth not Himself. That means He was not puffed up. Did He go around all puffed up? Boy, don't touch him. He'll spit on you. Doth not behave himself unseemly. Seeketh not his own. Was not easily provoked. Thought no evil. Now see, that sounds just like the Lord, doesn't it? Now we could go on in this. He bore all things. He believed all things. He hoped all things. He endured all things. Christ never failed. Now, how do we build character? Let's back up to verse 4. Here's a good way to build character. Now, you see, we're Christians, true? Why are we called Christians? Can somebody tell me? Because we're Christ-like. The word Christian comes from His, his, own, his own name. They were first called Christians at Antioch. Why? They acted like Christ. They lived like Christ. They were like Christ. So Christian means Christ-like. Okay? Let's take the word Christ out of this context. And let's put our own name there. Let me read it for you. John Grant suffers long. You see, to us sometimes Christianity is no more than a glorious event where we live on a high all the time. I'm way up here on cloud nine. 
Christianity was never designed to be an escape from reality. And when we're in the wilderness experience, this is when we build character into our system. John Grant suffers long. And listen, if you've never read the Bible this way and prayed about your own inhibitions and your own weaknesses, it's time that we start doing it. Do I suffer long? John Grant is kind to people. Am I kind the way I ought to be? John Grant does not envy. Put your own name here. John Grant is not puffed up. Put your own name there. Now this is the way you build character. He doth not behave himself unseemly. He seeks not his own. He is not easily provoked. He thinks no evil. Wow. He rejoices not in iniquity. Oh, you know, this is one right here. I, I need to preach on maybe for about five minutes. My time's getting away. He rejoiceth not in iniquity. And some people, you know, they're just tickled to death when they see somebody do something bad so they can run and tell it. You know what I saw? Wow, you just wait till I go tell somebody. Now, that's the way kids operate. Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I acted like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And I still remember being a child. Don't you? And you do something bad and your little sister see you. You wait till I tell mom! And boy, they go trucking away to tell mom. And here comes mom with the... Well, they don't do that anymore. <clears throat> Isn't that true? Sure. But he does not rejoice in iniquity. Not Pastor Grant. Now I'm not I'm using my name here because I can't use all of your names. But he does rejoice in the truth. Praise God for the truth. I say praise God for the truth. Pastor Grant beareth all things, he believeth all things, he hopeth all things, he endures all things. You see, God was not going to say, okay, put your man on Elisha and tell him he can have whatever he wants. No, no. Oh, no. And this is the area in which Christians become discouraged and disqualified. I say this is an area in which Christians become discouraged and disqualified. But Pastor Grant never fails. Now, this is a true test of man's Christianity. I'm not saying in every respect that I feel that everybody here can rise up to be just like Jesus. But I believe you can strive for the high calling in Christ. And you see, this is what he, this is what he was doing. And when he built that character... I say when he built that character. Why do we need to build character anyway? Well, the number one reason is that no man is complete until he has built a Christ-like character in himself. 
What does Colossians 2 verse 9 state? And all of us that believe in the oneness of the Godhead can quote that. Let's turn there. Can you, can you quote that? How many of you can quote this? For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 10. And we are complete. You see, no man can be complete until he has built character. God's character into himself. And when the Bible says we're complete in Him, it doesn't mean we're just complete because we repented of our sins. It doesn't mean we were complete simply because we are baptized in Jesus' name. It doesn't mean we were complete simply because we spoke with tongues. It doesn't mean we were complete simply because that we received a healing. It doesn't mean we were complete simply because that we have the vibrating Spirit of God in our hands. But it means we're complete when we take on His character. We are complete in Him. Praise God. And when we become complete in Him, all, all that Christ was, all that He will ever be, can be manifested in the church of the living God. That's why the Bible tells us Jesus said, and greater things than these shall you do because I go to my Father. And please, church, let's never excuse ourselves to say, well, Jesus did it, but we are inferior to Him. Listen, the same power that worked in Christ Jesus is alive in your very being tonight. He can do exceeding abundantly and above everything that we are able to ask our Think according to the power that worketh within us. Praise God. Now, God sees this man's faithfulness. And he looks down and he said, you know, during his time of servitude, he was sure obedient. I mean, he learned, he grew, he built character in him. I want him to take this man's place. And so Elijah asked him, what would you want me to do? I'm going to give you a wish. Now you tell me, what would you like to do? Wow. Little wonder he chose what he did because, well, he burned all of his past bridges behind him. He'd forsaken everything to walk with God and follow God. He chose a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. I just want to do twice as much as you were able to do while you were here. Elijah said, now if you, if you get the mantle, when the mantle falls, if you get it, then you can have it. Elijah's wise choice. He chose God first. I say he chose God first. And let me conclude in my remarks tonight 
by saying to you that he had a sense of values that were so great. He could have probably asked for all of his plows back, a nice farm, a beautiful home, riches. Jesus says in Matthew 13 that riches are deceitful. Isn't that something? They're deceitful. They're deceitful. Riches, if you've got riches and you've got God, that's all right. But if you've got riches and you don't have God, you don't have anything, friend, because you'll never be complete without Him. See, that's why the daughter of the late John D. Rockefeller stood in a hotel lobby with a pistol to her head. And she said, I'm unhappy. And she screamed to the number of people in that hotel lobby in New York. And she said, and furthermore, tell all my friends I'm unhappy. She took her own life. If riches alone could do it, she would have been a happy person. But it couldn't do it. You know, I believe that I'm speaking to some of you that God would like to help tonight. And there are times when the Lord comes down and He just says, what would you like me to help you with? What, what do you want me to do for you? It's at this time when our senses of values need to be straight. Because, friend, if you choose God, you really choose everything. If I could wish one thing and have it, what would it be? The child said that all my wishes would come true. And you know, the Lord's everything I've ever hoped for. He's everything I've ever longed for. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Someday, in the very near future, the trumpet of the Lord will sound. The dead in Christ will rise. And we that are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet Him in the air, and so shall we ever be with Him. Praise God. You see, our hope is not in this world, the system of the world, or anything here. But it's in God. Some of you have wrestled with problems and troubles and trials. You're in the wilderness. That's what you're doing. decision in this wilderness atmosphere to serve God and to be the best obedient servant you can be will determine